What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we are going to talk about countries, specifically how to measure ESG risks in countries all over the world. And then we discuss Nike's dismissal of its diversity chief after only two years on the job. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. A global crisis gives us a chance to see how different governments operate when facing a similar challenge. Some react swiftly and decisively, while others wobble in their decisions fomenting confusion and further chaos. The question for us now is, as this is going on, how can we create a map with these different reactions? And in doing so, better understand the regions in which the companies we cover operate. My colleague and guest today, Bavir Shah, has begun to do just that. He has been exploring how events like protests and civil unrest public health crises, labor strikes, environmental litigation against governments, and natural disasters can create country-level ESG risks, which change how a company operates within its community. Those differences, as Bavir told me, can create barriers for companies to pursue their ESG goals. So, you know, part of what affects a company's ability to pursue a green agenda um, comes from itself, a huge chunk of it comes from itself, but it also comes from the environment that it's operating in, in a wider context, the actual country around it, you know, what is the price of renewable energy or what is the price of decarbonizing in that country where it is located. Which is a problem that cuts both ways. If you're a government trying to woo a company that has an ambitious carbon reduction plan to your region, ensuring it has the ability to purchase and use renewable energy might be kind of useful. And if you're an investor in that company, you might want to know if the region it operates in actually, you know, has the tools needed to achieve its ambitious carbon reduction plans. And that's the sort of analysis that isn't always easy when you're just looking at what a government is saying it's doing. We are flagging countries um, that have had cases filed against them due to um, climate or environmental issues. Um, that could be a case raised by civilians or by bodies or by organizations filed against the government or the local government. Um, and what's interesting there is that um, sometimes, again, as an outsider to a country, you might be reading about uh, plans for decarbonization or very strong commitments that are signed on paper. Um, but then you're seeing um, litigation being raised um, about plans and national policies that seem quite contradictory to the ones that have been signed. So an example would be um, nuclear uh, sorry, coal power stations um, in, in Asia and in, in Japan, um, and also further um, coal policies in, in Poland, and also a recent lawsuit that was raised against the Australian government, which is probably the, the first of its kind um, about its own climate and forest fire policies. So what Bavir is talking about there is this really interesting class action lawsuit that was filed by young climate activists in late June that alleges the Australian government failed to disclose the material risks of climate change to those investing in government bonds, aka so sovereign bond holders. It's kind of like the lawsuit that was brought against ExxonMobil in New York 
by the attorneys general in that state that alleged the Ex- that ExxonMobil lied to shareholders and to the public about the costs and consequences of climate change. It's all about this disclosure or lack of disclosure. And it's all about how climate policy is addressed by a sovereign that is then put toward a company. And now you have a situation where the COVID pandemic can be looked at symbiotically with these other factors such as natural disasters that are exacerbated by a lack of effective climate policy by both sovereigns and companies. And just when you thought that was enough, climate change in a pandemic, we're seeing increased social unrest throughout the world, which can be exacerbated by how a sovereign reacts to the protests. For example, sending in an armed police versus an unarmed police. And we've collected data that shows how your neighboring country or state reacts to the protests can also have a big effect on how your state or country reacts to the protests. So you can use all this data to see where these short-term changes are happening and what country might be more at risk for further unrest. Countries that have had COVID cases sort of peak or, or just about get over their first wave have suddenly been impacted by natural disasters, uh, such as like in Bangladesh or in India, which have then displaced people who were previously not so much at risk, but put them in very closely packed camps. Um, and because of that, the infection has again started to, to escalate again. Um, or you're seeing another side of COVID, which is to do with its impact on on health workers and um, some inefficiencies that are going on at a governmental level. So, for instance, you're seeing um, uh, people protest related to COVID, not just due to unemployment and due to you know protests against lockdowns, but you're also seeing health workers protest because of fairly controllable issues, such as not being paid or not receiving payments in, in some you know, emerging countries. And obviously there are differences for investors when they're dealing with governments versus companies. You can engage with a company and try to get it to change its way or stay the course regardless of your citizenry. But it's a bit harder to convince governments to do something as an investor. And that's obviously a good thing. However, like with companies, a sovereign's misstep can have serious effects on investors' desire to operate within the region. For instance, we've seen the Swedish um, kind of, uh, central bank portfolio um, no longer um, looking to, to invest in some parts of Australia, which had been um, associated with with lack of climate management, um, or at least had seen um, accusations of that. Another example of this is Brazil, where uh, we all know to some extent that there are many issues to do with the Amazon, which is certainly not new, but it came into focus last year in a way that it hadn't done for for many years because the numbers had escalated and the reputational risks for companies who are involved or investing in those governments suddenly became quite apparent. Um, And some of them had to either change their policies for that country or do something different um, in terms of their um, investment processes um, about any future investments they're going to make in in other countries that could be similarly affected by these kind of risks. The next step in this is for us to use big data in combination with this data set that Bavir helped develop to understand what is going on in real time when something like a natural disaster occurs, which is exactly what is happening right now in China. Since the start of June, the Hubei region located in China's Yangtze River Basin has experienced record rainfall and historic flooding that has over overwhelmed the dams along the river. The massive Three Gorges Dam has opened floodgates to release excess water that caused flooding downriver from the site. The thing is, a lot of companies operate along the Yangtze River. According to China's statistical yearbook, 
the Yangtze River accounts for about 40% of China's gross domestic product, or GDP. That's a lot. My next guest, Jillian Malad, has been looking at this with our colleague Sam Block to understand what this might do to some of the companies under our coverage. They found that there were about 25 companies that we cover that have assets downriver from the Three Gorges Dam, and a lot of them are mining and utility companies, which makes this flooding all the more dangerous for the region because mining companies create a lot of toxic waste, which then gets put into what's called a tailings dam. And if you remember the tragic incident in 2019 where Vale, a mining company in Brazil, had its tailings dam burst, killing hundreds and polluting the area, you'll understand why this is a big problem. Here's Jillian. What we did notice is that a number of the mining companies that we identified, almost all of them, were uh, we had rated poorly in terms of environmental performance management. So, um, you know, this exacerbates the risk of toxic chemicals being released by the floodwaters and um, contaminating the area. And as these mining dams deal with possible toxic spills, the coal utilities that are in the region have to deal with hydroelectric dams that are at capacity because those dams are filled with water and there's a lot of excess energy produced by the sheer abundance of flood water. Meaning those utilities aren't going to have anyone to sell their coal to when there's an abundance of hydroelectricity. It's very cheap, which is a big problem for two companies in the region. Uh, China Resources Power Holding Company and Hubei Energy Group both have uh, about 30% of their operations located downriver from the Three Gorges Dam, and that's 30% of their total operations. So uh, you're looking at a definite revenue hit if these uh, plants are not operating. So let's take this back to what Bavir was talking about earlier. You have this flooding event in China, which is killing people and disrupting the region's economy. And you look at it through a historical backdrop of the region to see whether this is a one-off event or the emergence of systemic ESG country risk. You can do that by using the map that we've created with this data set. If it is something that is systemic, then as an investor, you would have to consider how that risk might impact your desire to invest in the region. Nike's Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Kelly Lennard, will be stepping down soon after just two years of the job. She was at Nike for about 18 years, though. She will be replaced by a woman named Felicia Mayo, according to an email to Nike staff that was reported on and reviewed by the Financial Times. This is an interesting move by Nike, and it comes after Nike CEO John Donahue told his employees that to fight systemic racism, we must first get our own house in order. To talk about this move, I have with me my colleague Megan Eastman, who has been working on our diversity research for a considerable amount of time. And so, Megan, what do you make of this move by Nike? Yeah, I think this is interesting, if only for the reason that it made the news. I think it's a reflection of the context that we're in and the fact that now this is news and, and companies are paying attention, but also the the public, whether it's Nike's employees, shareholders, customers are paying attention to this. So, you know, I, I doubt this is the first time that a corporate diversity and inclusion leader has been let go because they ostensibly haven't achieved the results the company is looking for. But you know, to me, I think this is it's interesting to see it in the news. I don't know from the outside how much it reflects Nike's commitment to improving it or how much it reflects Nike's understanding that 
they're being judged on this. What's fascinating to me is that this woman's coming from Tesla, and Tesla does not have the best record when it comes to labor management, and it doesn't have the best record when it comes to diversity and inclusion. I also wonder if Nike is always going to have a problem with diversity and inclusion because they're located in Portland, Oregon. And to be real, Oregon was set up as a white haven. And I've lived in Portland for two years, and it's stunning. The nature is amazing. The people are super nice. The city itself is extremely liberal. But it's about 96% white. And I can see how a lot of people of color might say, I'm not sure if I want to move somewhere where I'm going to be singled out for who I am. I mean, there's still a lot of hate groups that operate in Oregon itself. So, I mean, I think Nike's in this position where they're going to have to figure out how to recruit people when they're headquartered in a place that not many people of color might want to go to. Yeah, so Nike's in an interesting position here, and I think we've talked about this before with trying to take a public stance on issues, specifically around race. We've talked about their support for Colin Kaepernick um, taking a knee in support of racial equality in the United States, uh, you know, and Nike being associated with that. And, you know, you can have a whole separate conversation about the marketing value of that and who they're trying to target and so forth. But I think it does mean that the companies kind of set themselves up to for there to be public expectations about it, um, especially amongst their customers uh, and their employees. And so, you know, with with that as the backdrop, maybe there's a little bit more pressure on Nike to do better. And the fact that the company is reporting a lot of detailed diversity information about its workforce already makes it a leader in disclosure. We don't see that many companies doing that. But, you know, the thing about reporting your numbers is that then everybody can see them. So if they're not as good as you would want them to be or as if they're if they're not as good as outsiders or insiders think they should be, then, you know, you do open yourself up to critique. Now, you, you raised an interesting question there, Mike, about where Nike's headquartered and the fact that Portland is a, a pretty white city. And so a lot of the talent pool you'll be pulling from, if it's people who live locally, you know, it, it could make it harder to recruit in top diverse talent and promote it up through the ranks. Um, on the other hand, Nike's a huge organization and, and has the capacity to be able to recruit and relocate people. So you know, it might make it dif- more difficult kind of on a, a day-to-day level, but I don't know that it's necessarily a barrier to substantial improvement if the company puts the right kind of resources into it. Just for everyone that's unaware, Colin Kaepernick is the ex-NFL player that kind of started the movement of taking a knee in the NFL to protest against police brutality and systemic racism in the U.S. And I kind of misspoke earlier when I said Nike's headquarters is in Portland. It's actually in Beaverton. And a lot of their employees are kind of scattered around the world, but a lot of the executive core and the management team is in Beaverton. A lot of the innovation that happens at Nike is from Beaverton. And basically, that's what people are sometimes more worried about with diversity than other parts of a company. But Megan, is there a possibility that Nike might actually see a profit hit from this or an issue with their credit? Uh, It's a problem for our society and it's a problem for Nike's culture. But is what's kind of the bottom line issue here? Yeah, so I don't know that we know that for sure, but it it does seem like there may be some evidence starting to point in that direction. You know, Nike's positioned itself 
publicly as supporting the cause of racial equality. And, and so maybe there are some more expectations there. And presumably the company's making a bet that that's going to lure in customers or help maintain customer loyalty. And the credit thing is interesting. Um, and I, I don't know about Nike here, but you know, another piece of interesting news that came out in the last week was Moody's, the credit rating agency, making a public statement for what they said was the first time uh, about Lloyd's which had made some public commitments, uh, quantitative commitments to making their ranks of workers more diverse, especially at the upper levels. And Moody's came out and said that that would be a credit positive move. So not just a nice thing to do, not just a reputational booster, but that it should actually improve Lloyd's credit worthiness, credit risk profile. Uh, And so I thought that was actually fascinating because I have definitely not seen that before. Okay, so here's what Moody said in the note they published last week. They said the bank's efforts were credit positive because they would improve staff diversity at all levels and reduce Lloyd's exposure to social risk. I mean, that's kind of what Bevere was talking about in the beginning of this. You have a situation where uh, a country's actions, such as social unrest, can create these risk factors, these ESG risk factors, where if a company doesn't address them, they can find themselves in either a situation where their employees aren't backing them, or as Moody says, they can actually have a credit issue. It seems like this might catch investors' eye where they are going to start saying, and stakeholders in general might start saying, if you make these kind of commitments and they're just kind of token commitments, then this could have a financial impact on the company that we as stakeholders are a part of. So you need to do something to actually address either the social unrest that's in your society or they might look at this note from Moody's and say, if we can get our stuff together, if we can actually have, uh, if we can improve staff diversity at all levels, we can actually see the cost of funding reduced at our company. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Bavere and Jillian and Megan for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Keep fighting for whatever you're fighting for out there. And I'll talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and/or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, 
and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.